Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes, the premier podcast on hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. As a worldwide educator and developer of best-in-class hand therapy content, Susan Weiss, occupational therapist and certified hand therapist, brings you an array of hand therapy specialists, hand care solutions, and more. Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes. I am really excited for our two-part series that we're going to have now on Dupuytren's disease. We are fortunate enough to have the opportunity to have Dr. Charlie Eaton, a pioneer in the treatment of patients with Dupuytren disease. Dr. Eaton has published and lectured internationally for many years. In 2003, he introduced the needle aponeurotomy procedure for Dupuytren contracture to the United States, and he has cared for thousands of hands with this technique. In 2008, Dr. Eaton founded the nonprofit advocacy Dupuytren Foundation, and then in 2012, he closed his clinical practice to transition to a full-time volunteer as the executive director of this organization, now named Dupuytren Research Group. Our first session with Dr. Eaton, we're going to dive into the cure of Dupuytren's and how we can all be a part of the cure. In the second part, Dr. Eaton will share pearls, treatment caveats, as well as interesting facts about wounding and the pathology of Dupuytren disease. So let's get to it and have Dr. Eaton first start with how he got into the field of hand and upper extremity surgery and then more specifically, the care of the Dupuytren patient. Thanks, thanks for having me on this podcast. This is a, 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 something that um, I, I think is gonna be helpful for everyone and it's something that I'm really looking forward to. Um, reviewing somebody's personal history is sometimes like re having someone tell you their dream. It may have a lot of details, but it can be very boring very fast. So I uh, got started on this process. I originally was going to go into uh, uh, biomedical engineering, and that was my thought on going into medical school. I thought I would get my uh, MD and then get a PhD and then be a scientist off in some secret lab designing uh, bionic hands and eyes and things like that. But in medical school, I uh, was really caught by hand surgery. It was just something that clicked. It wasn't any real uh, intellectual argument. It was just, I saw that and thought, wow, this is just great. It, it uh, appealed to a lot of different things that I'm interested in mechanically, biologically, and, and it's a very personal thing as well. And so I uh, took the path to become a hand surgeon and had a uh, fairly, uh, I was in academics for a few years uh, and then uh, moved into a community practice and was a bread and butter uh, community hand surgeon. And uh, in 2003, uh, a patient told me about this new procedure that was being done in France to treat Dupuytren disease and nobody was doing it in the States. And she wanted me to go to Paris to learn this technique so she could do it so she didn't have to fly to Paris. It just sounded stupid and dangerous and just strange. But I went online and saw a discussion group in which people were reviewing their experiences. and. Uh, 
unlike a lot of conversations about Dubitron, these folks were reporting happy experiences. They were talking more about the restaurants that they went to than how much they were uh, struggling with recovering from treatment, which is the usual thing that people talk about after they've had uh, traditional Dubitron treatment. And so I went over to Paris, invited myself over to this group that was doing this procedure, this needle apneurotomy procedure, and came back. And my phone started ringing off the hook in my office because it turns out there were a lot of people in the States that were just waiting for this treatment. And uh, so I was inundated with people that wanted uh, percutaneous fasciotomy or needle apneurotomy for Dupuytren. And my practice transformed into a Dupuytren specific practice. And I was uh, in fairly short order treating about a hundred Dupuytren hands uh, a month. Uh, between 80 and 100. And so I had this huge experience with that, um, realized there was a, a big need for advocacy in Dubuchin disease because there wasn't any advocacy program and everyone came in with the same kinds of complaints. They didn't, they had either had failed treatment or they knew someone who had had failed uh, fasciectomy or had complications of it. And they were desperate enough that they were flying across the country to have me treat them sight unseen. That was really what uh, led me to realize that it wasn't me, it was that mm -hmm. disease itself was uh, undertreated. And um, so I set up this advocacy nonprofit, the Dupuytren Foundation. We started out as just a general advocacy organization, uh, connecting uh, patients with resources and surgeons with scientists to try to push things forward in terms of uh, research for better treatments. And uh, that evolved into a foundation kind of model doing fundraising to give research grants. And we went through a cycle of that. And that's when I, I realized that no one was doing the, the specific kind of research that really had to be done to make a, a difference in Dupuytren disease treatment. So uh, that was when uh, we changed the model to conducting research, the type of research that's needed to make an impact on developing better Dupuytren treatments. And we changed the name to the Dupuytren Research Group to better reflect its uh, mission. And we are charging along with uh, our research. I expect to begin uh, our first round of blood draw uh, invitations to participants in the International Dupuytren Data Bank I expect to start drawing blood and sending off for lab tests this year within the next uh, month or so. So it's very exciting. It's been a long time coming. And uh, so the problem of Dupuytren still hasn't been sorted out and people are still dealing with the same issues that they were when I first learned uh, percutaneous fasciotomy. And so there's, there's a long way we have to go in terms of education and awareness uh, and uh, at all levels, patients, physicians, the government, uh, for the, the problem of Dubuchin that, that isn't solved and what we have to do to make uh, progress toward a cure. So I, I don't know if that answered your question. That does. It, it really does. So all along, we've been treating Dupuytrens, not curing Dupuytrens. So the mission, of course, is to find a cure. And so right. your basic essence right now is collecting the database in order to do blood testing because the cure is going to be by determining the actual problem. 
right. which you're gonna be able to determine with the blood test. So can you go into a little bit more without getting too technical? Oh yeah, no, that's how, that's how fine. that actually it, works. <laughs> it is it it becomes very complicated very fast. But the yes. simple the simple concept is that um, is there's a mismatch on what Dupuytren disease is and who is treating it. So Dupuytren is treated by surgeons. Yes. Surgeons do best treating surgical diseases. And surgical diseases are diseases that have a definitive uh, treatment with a procedure that stops the process. And so someone has a broken wrist, you put the bones back together, it heals up, and you're done. So that's a definitive treatment and the end of the story, uh, for the most part. Surgeons also treat uh, the complications of chronic medical diseases. Uh, and so those diseases aren't surgical diseases, they're medical diseases that have surgical complications. So surgeons mm -hmm. treat the complications of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, they don't own a rheumatoid. Rheumatoid is not a surgical disease. Rheumatoid is a medical disease. It causes these local complications. And fortunately, the incidence of that's dropped significantly since biologic treatments for, for rheumatoid have come out. Surgeons treat complications of gout. Gout's not a surgical disease. It's a medical disease that has these local complications. And what has flown onto the radar is that Dupuytren is not a surgical disease. It's a medical disease that affects uh, many areas in addition to the hands. And it's not cured by surgery. And surgeons shouldn't be the only caregivers. The only reason that we are is that there's not yet a medical treatment for Dupuytren. And there's been kind of a um, vicious cycle, which is because there is no medical treatment for, for Dupuytren, the medical doctors are not interested. It's off their radar. Uh, and the problem is that Dupuytren is a chronic progressive disease, like rheumatoid, like gout, like cardiovascular disease. And the um, way that progress has been made in treating those diseases is with chronic disease research methods. And the concept is, rather than measuring the outcome of treatment by whether or not you have a complication, you measure the outcome of treatment in real time with a biomarker. So for cardiovascular disease, the biomarker is cholesterol. Mm -hmm. For rheumatoid, it's uh, it rheumatoid factor, but it's also uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha. And in the chronic disease treatment model, you use your biomarker as a, to do trend analysis so that you can get a, a quick feedback on the uh, effect of your medical treatment and find out in, in real time whether it's doing something. So if your cholesterol is high, your uh, physician's going to give you some kind of treatment for that. Not because cholesterol is bad uh, in the moment, but over the long term, uh, it results in complications. And so the doctor can measure your cholesterol and then give some kind of treatment, whether it's diet, lifestyle changes, medications, and then find out in a month or so whether you're making progress and whether you've changed your risk for having these complications of stroke and heart attack years down the road. They don't have to wait for people to get uh, to have a stroke or a heart attack, they can uh, see immediately whether the medicine's working. That's the model that we need for Dupuytren. We need to be able to test in real time, and, uh, uh, and we can't. The problem is that hand surgeons are the only caregivers for Dupuytren. Hand surgeons don't do chronic disease research at all. And medical doctors, the ones that do this kind of research, don't treat Dupuytren at all. 
And so there are these two research silos, silos of, of different types of research. Surgical research tends to be technical and uh, mechanical uh, as compared to chronic disease research. And so patients with Dupuytren disease have been lost between these two silos of research for a couple hundred years waiting for a cure that, that hasn't been coming. And it hasn't been coming because the, the appropriate type of research matched to the type of disease, a chronic progressive disease, hasn't been done. And that's what we need to change. And that's, that's the whole concept behind doing biomarker discovery research on Dupuytren disease. We come up with a blood test, we can have something to measure drug response uh, quickly rather than having to wait decades for things to change. The, the numbers on Dupuytren are, are impressive in terms of how difficult it is to document a preventive treatment. So someone who first develops a, a nodule in the palm, uh, what little data we have on this, and there's not much data because surgeons don't collect longitudinal data on patients who have chronic diseases. They, they uh, come in for a SWAT mission, the person has a problem, the surgeon fixes it, boom, they're done. And so the kind of medical information what happens to people over decades is, isn't typically collected. Uh, but if someone has a nodule, over the next 10 years, about one out of 10 people, the nodule will go away without any treatment. About seven in 10 people, three quarters, will have either no change or will have a little bit of a bend, but not enough to require any kind of treatment. And the remaining two out of 10, 20%, over the 10 years following the initial nodule, will develop a bend in the finger or fingers bad enough for treatment. So looking at those numbers, if you do a, a power analysis to say, how big a study do we need to do to be able to, to demonstrate efficacy of a preventive drug, um, that, that number is that if you had a medicine which is about 50% effective in preventing progression, and you wanted to demonstrate that, you'd have to recruit 1,000 patients, treat 500 with whatever drug you're trying, 500 with placebo, and then follow them for five years to, to compare how bent their fingers are. So that's a huge expensive study. Nobody's going to pay for that kind of research. And that would only look at one drug one time and it would take, it would take 5,000 patient years to do that. So that's an example of the logistic issues of a chronic disease research model uh, without a biomarker. Once you have a biomarker, it changes everything. And so, our goal is to, uh, is to compare people that have Dupuytren disease with people that don't and see what's different in the, in the blood tests. And traditional blood tests, the kind that you get from your internist, uh, are, are not typically affected by Dupuytren. There's a relationship with uh, correlation with uh, high cholesterol, uh, elevated triglycerides that's a little bit controversial and there's no cause and effect relationship that that has been documented so the uh, issue is that of the things that ha that we do know about Dupuytren biology almost all of it is from what's going on in the palm at the time that tissues removed at the time of surgery and that's kind of a late effect that's not what's going on early on but based on what we know about that and what we know about other fibrotic diseases, diseases that cause the kind of scar tissue that, that uh, is what Dupuytren cords are made of, uh, there's a whole list of potential circulating biomarkers. And so we are doing uh, a, 
broad survey of about a thousand different proteins in the blood, growth factors, cytokines, uh, different chemical messengers. And Dupuytren is also uh, genetic in some respect. There's a strong um, demographic or, or uh, uh, blanking on the word, uh, pedigree studies that, that uh, suggest a strong inheritance of, of Dupuytren. And so we're looking at different genetic factors as well. Now, the common questions that are asked about that is, why don't we work with 23andMe or Ancestry.com that's doing these uh, genetic tests? And the um, answer is, one, that the kinds of tests that those companies are doing are uh, are old school genetic tests. It's called genotyping, in which they look at a, a certain number of genes as a sample and then extrapolate that information to uh, predict what other genes might be involved. And if you look at the big studies that have been done on pooled genetic data from Europe in Dupuytren disease, that's the kind of information they have. They, they have not done these kinds of tests with uh, what's called next generation DNA sequencing in which you look, you can look at uh, all of the genes that make proteins or all of the genes in the genome, whole genome uh, sequencing. And so um, that's the kind of information that we need to get to really cast a broad net. We're looking at, at uh, someone's uh, genetic sequence and that's helpful to identify a gene, but you know that knowing what the gene or genes are doesn't immediately translate into new treatments. Uh, right, that's the first step. Right, that's the first step. And it's, um, it has most uh, often been done in diseases that have one gene mutation, single gene mutation, such as uh, uh, the BRCA gene for breast cancer, or uh, the gene for porphyria, or sickle cell anemia, or hemophilia. Those are all single gene mutations. And even then it's complicated and it's not uh, immediately translated to, oh, here's a medicine for it. Dubitrin is not a single gene mm. uh, disease. It's, uh, it's polygenetic, which means that there are a number of genes involved. And the, the number of genes right now that are suspect genes based on what we know is in the, uh, really in the dozens of genes range, oh which makes it very hard to, to sort out. So um, we're going to have a fresh start and look uh, at, at genes with this next generation sequencing. And uh, we're also going to look at some other genetic uh, aspects that, that will give us uh, clues as to how to develop medicines. So one is a thing called DNA methylation. DNA methylation are changes that happen to the DNA over the course of someone's lifetime. And they are, uh, one way to look at it is there are switches that can turn genes on or off. And as we age, uh, certain genes are, are uh, expressed, uh, turned on, or not expressed, they're turned off. And that's uh, part of how our bodies respond to environmental stresses and also just to age. When the changes that are due to aging are not just that our bodies are wearing out, it's that certain genes are turned on and off and that causes mm -hmm. physical changes in our bodies. And um, so that's a dynamic measure. Uh, another dynamic measure is small RNA. So small RNA is a DNA-related um, uh, system by which genes speak with, with other genes and can turn genes on or off. The importance of that is that uh, what we need is 
something that'll dynamically tell us in a biomarker what the disease activity is today. How bad is your Dupuytren today? And your regular old genes, your, your, your DNA doesn't change over your lifetime. So it's an indicator of your, your risk for developing Dupuytren, but it's not going to tell you how bad your Dupuytren is now. Do you have active Dupuytren disease? Are you responding to a medicine? It can't tell you that at all. So the uh, routine DNA testing is, uh, is important, but if we want to make progress toward a, a medicine that we can uh, test the effect of, uh, we have to use tests other than routine DNA. So that's the big picture of it. And so we have uh, uh, an interesting um, dilemma, which is right now there's no federal funding for Dupuytren mm -hmm. research. There's no, no funding at the NIH, the CDC, the uh, DOD, uh, HHS. Um, none of those major federal agencies have Dupuytren-specific funding. And the reason is no one has submitted this type of uh, Dupuytren research for grants uh, in the past. No one has done preliminary studies to show uh, uh, some kind of uh, pilot outcomes or pilot data. And mm -hmm. the NIH doesn't support exploratory research on any large scale. So we have had to do this on our own and self-fund it. But the good news is that we're, uh, we've made our first benchmark to be able to start uh, collecting blood and sending it off to the lab and that will start this year, and then we have to do some more fundraising to complete the analysis, but uh, we're making progress. I, I, Very exciting. I, I love that. It's, and you know, I, as I mentioned to the listeners that you've dedicated your life to this, your <clears throat> clinical practice, this is, this is your mission, and it's brilliant that you've get, gotten the opportunity to do this and created the opportunity, because it, it I'm not sure if anyone else would have bothered, just would have been business as usual. Well, I really, I'm just, I love hearing how you're doing all this. And I know you have uh, places where therapists can send their patients to actually get involved, like with the um, dupestudy.com. Are you going to still be collecting? Oh, or, yes. Okay. So can you tell them a little bit more about how, do they send only patients? Are you collecting blood from patients? that they, you know, that are actively, you know, having deeper trends issues or are you collecting everybody because you need to compare? Can you dive a little bit more into that before we talk about some of the current sure. practices? Sure. sure. Uh, so the uh, International Dupuytren Data Bank, which is the uh, short code for it is dupestudy.com, will bring in enrollees to, uh, to sign up for this. It's a longitudinal crowdsource study that launched in 2015 we get about 100 new signups a month. We have over 4,000 people who have completed the initial enrollment process. And uh, this is a, a secure, HIPAA-protected, uh, IRB-approved study that uh, will collect patient-reported data on their general health, uh, Dupuytren-related questions, uh, many of which aren't typically uh, recorded in the, in the medical history, such as family history of Dupuytren disease or age of onset of Dupuytren disease. And uh, based on that, um, we, for this pilot study, the, the lab tests are expensive. The, the lab budget for 100 patients is $400,000. So it's taken us quite a while to raise that money without any grants. Um, 
And so we're going to be looking at 50 people with severe Dubitrin disease and 50 people that don't have Dubitrin and don't have any Dubitrin in their family controls. And the criteria for selecting this first group, we really want to make uh, stack the cards in a way that will give us the best chance of, of showing abnormalities in the blood. Um, we know that people that have uh, onset of disease younger than 50 tend to have more biologically aggressive Dupuytren. We know that people that have Dupuytren in their family have more, on, the, on average, have more biologically aggressive Dupuytren. We know that people that have more locations of, of Dupuytren nodules have more biologically aggressive mm -hmm. Dupuytren. So the um, interesting thing uh, in terms of, of the family history is that the, the number of people that you have in your family with um, Dupuytren has a uh, what you call a dose response curve. The more people in your family with Dupuytren, the more aggressive your Dupuytren tends to be. And so an example of this is that the, um, if you look at uh, people that have no one in their family history with Dupuytren, the average age of first surgery is 61 in one study. The average age of first surgery in people that had one parental line, so somebody in your mother's line with Dupuytren, uh, that age of onset drops down to about 56. And if people have Dupuytren in both family lines, the age of onset drops down to 46, something like that. And so earlier onset correlates uh, directly with the number of people uh, with Dupuytren in your family. So we're looking at that. We have in our group, we have 40 people who have Dupuytren in both parents, not just in parental lines. Uh, we'll start uh, with people that have a strong family history, who have onset under the age of 50, who have uh, three or more areas involved. So that would be, say, both hands and a, uh, a foot because letter hose nodules are the same as Dupuytren nodules, uh, are the same as knuckle pads biologically. You biopsy them, you find the same thing. Um, and those are people with a strong um, genetic predisposition by clinical terms and who have active disease. So those are the people that we should be able to identify something circulating in their, their blood. The, the argument for looking for blood is that uh, in, in biopsying the, the hand, the problem is, is that just doing a biopsy of a nodule can stir up Dupuytren. So it's not good as a screening mm -hmm. <clears throat> mechanism. It's not good as a preclinical mechanism. You can't do any testing before there's a nodule. And Dupuytren biology is very similar to wound healing biology. And the way that wound healing biology works is it's a systemic process with, with factors that you can measure in the bloodstream. If you get, say you have a cut in your hand and you get that sewn up, uh, you'd think that all the healing is taking place in your hand, but what actually happens is when the tissue's damaged, it releases special proteins into the blood called uh, cytokines and uh, uh, chemoattractants. Mm -hmm. And these proteins circulate through the bloodstream and when they pass through the bone marrow, they cause uh, special repair cells, fibrocytes, to, to leave the bone marrow and go into the circulation and other immune cells. And those cells circulate around until they pass through blood vessels where these chemicals are coming from, and then they, they stop, attach to the side of the blood vessel, 
crawl out of the bloodstream into the tissue and start their repair work. That's where cells in, in nodules come from. And then the process goes on, and when the healing is done, those, those uh, special uh, cytokines stop being released into the bloodstream, and so the process winds down. So based on that, you can measure things that are going on with uh, the healing process by measuring factors in the blood. So for example, there are factors in people that have burn injuries that uh, are the level of the factors that you measure in the blood are proportional to the size of the burn injury. And so the bottom line is that healing and Dupuytren biology are systemic. They're not just something that's happening in the palm. It is really important for us to understand these wound healing concepts as hand and upper extremity therapists. So thank you so much for going into quite a bit of detail on that. And this concludes part one with Dr. Eaton on a future without Dupuytren's disease. In part two, we're going to focus on current practices for caring for Dupuytren patients while we patiently wait for the cure that he is so diligently working on. And in the meantime, please go to dupestudy.com and sign up and have your patients sign up so you can be a part of the cure. And also the dupatrin.org website is loaded with fantastic content for patients, surgeons, and therapists. So I highly recommend you visit the site. Please feel free to email us at info at handtherapy.com to obtain an information sheet, which will be loaded with resources about Dupuytren disease. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Hand Therapy Heroes. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Visit handtherapy.com and register for our newsletter containing free content and courses about our fascinating hands. Hold hands today for a more functional tomorrow.